right, so that's the, the silky smooth voice of Bruno Mars singing the profoundly deep lyrics. One, two, three, you can count on me. And four, three, two, I can count on you. I mean, it moves my soul. I, I thought about using the classic song, Lean On Me by Bill Withers. How many would have preferred to hear that one, huh? Yeah, yeah, and that's another great one. But I, I got to admit, anytime I hear a ukulele, I just, it's like, this is gold. Just makes me happy, no matter what mood I'm in. I hear a ukulele, I'm good. So Bruno got the nod. Well, as I said, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Together, where we're studying these one another statements. And we recognize that these calls from God to live together and to love each other, they're there are deep-seated desires in each of us, so much so that the songs of this world, like we just listened to, very often reflect these deep desires of our hearts that God has put there. The problem is, for the world, that apart from real relationship with Jesus Christ, it's impossible to actually experience and achieve what we long for without Him. I mean, we might get glimpses of it, but it's unsustainable apart from Christ. And so today we turn our attention to the next one another statement we're studying about bearing one another's burdens as a clear expression for our love for each other. And before I dive into the text, I want to tell you a little story about a man named Simeon the Stylite. Anyone heard of him before? didn't think so. Simeon was born in the late 300s AD in what is present-day Turkey. And at the age of 13, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and immediately evidenced an uncommon dedication to following Jesus. And by the age of 16, he had joined a local monastery wanting to devote all of himself to Christ. So how about it, guys? You think you're going to go join a monastery? Yeah? By the time you're 16? I'm looking at you, little burger. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm pointing to you. Well, he was quickly, after joining, he was asked to actually leave the monastery because his practices of isolation and aestheticism, kind of like being super holy and devout and separating yourself from everything, were too extreme even for the monks. And so he left the monastery and he locked himself in a hut where he remained apart from the world for a year and a half. And eventually he grew tired of the amenities that the hut provided and instead found a rocky outcropping in the mountains close to where he lived. Now, by this time, he began to acquire some fame because of his extreme lifestyle, and some pilgrims would come along every now and then to see him. And this bothered Simeon tremendously because he wanted to be alone with God. And so he left his place in the mountains and he built a platform at the top of a nine-foot column. The word stylite simply means pole sitter. And his platform was only a couple feet wide with a thin banister around it so that he wouldn't fall off. And, and as the years went by, Simeon continued to raise the platform higher and higher, build his pole higher and higher as more and more people came to see him because he wanted to get away from him. Until near the end of his life, the platform that he was on was 50 feet above the ground. And that's where he lived day and night, every day of the year, no matter what season it was, he was on that platform. And for 37 years, Simeon lived on top of a pole, remaining separated from the world through his increasingly lofty perch, seeking to go it alone as some form of extreme holiness and spirituality. 
Now, as we study our text today from Galatians chapter 5 and 6, it's my hope and prayer that we see that what Simeon did is the exact opposite of what we are called to be and do as children of God. It's the exact opposite of what it means to be a part of the family of God and to love one another. So, Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and as you're turning there to Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the awesome privilege of sharing your truth. I thank you that we can study your word and be encouraged and, and moved by it. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill me and that you would speak through my lips and my tongue, that it would be yielded to you. And our hearts would be yielded to you as well as we hear your truth and are transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Now, we're going to be starting in verse 25, Galatians 5, 25. And we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 5. So, Galatians 6, 5. There's an unfortunate little chapter break here. Probably should have gone at verse 25, so that's why we're going to be reading through these, these uh, verses here. And we're going to break this passage down today into three sections. We're going to look at our self-image first. Then we're going to look at what it means to have spiritual restoration. And then lastly, we're going to look at selfless burden-bearing. So we went with the S alliteration today. And you guys can take notes if you'd like as we go along. Now, before we dive into the text, I just want to give you a little background, a little context. It's always important to have that. In chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul has just finished exhorting the Galatians not to fall victim to losing their freedom in Christ by seeking salvation through keeping the law, following the rules. We would call that legalism, right? But he also is calling them not to abuse their freedom in Christ by rejecting the idea of God's call to personal holiness altogether. And, and so, he is rejecting legalism and he's rejecting licentiousness, open license, living however we want without any regard to personal holiness. Both of those extremes, Paul says, are sinful. And so now, Paul is giving practical examples of what walking in true freedom looks like through the Spirit of God. If we're made alive by the Spirit of God, then we should be walking by the power of the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit is producing fruit within us. That's, that's the progression that he goes through here. And Paul explains that how this walking by the Spirit begins is with an understanding of who we are as Christians, what our self-image should be. And he reminds us that our identity in Christ doesn't rest in what others think or say about us, which, if you're anything like me, it's so easy to fall into that, right? But instead... Our identity is all about what God says about us. And this is very, very important. This is, in fact, critical for understanding the foundation and understanding how we're able to live out the command that we'll be studying today to bear one another's burdens. It is impossible to effectively and sustainably bear one another's burdens if we do not have a solid understanding of our self-image, our identity in Christ. All right? We understand that? We got where we're going here? Roadmap? Let's do it. So, verses 25 and 26, Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, contrary to what so many people like Simeon the Stylite think, spirituality is not an individualistic quest of self-fulfillment and 
setting oneself apart from everything else in this world. Our spirituality doesn't flourish for our own glory and benefit. Our spiritual maturity only grows as we seek to love and serve God and others, not ourselves. I hope you would all agree with me there. So we have to understand then that the primary way to actually grow spiritually is not in isolation from community and in selfish pursuits, but it's actually in the context of community where I am serving others. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take time away sometimes. Jesus did that, of course, and just spent individual one-on-one time with the Father. But it was always to empower him and strengthen him to go back and continue to minister to those around him. And that's the same way it is with us. This is why Paul begins his explanation of what spirit-filled living looks like by addressing our self-image, and in particular, a self-image that compares itself to everyone else around us. Pell tells us here that both those who are legalists and those who live with open license, remember these two approaches that Paul has been chastising, are ultimately guilty of the same thing. They're guilty of being conceited and seeking relationship only for their own selfish benefit, their own twisted version of spirituality. In the Greek, the word conceited means seeking empty honor and fleeting glory. You got that? You can see all the selfies I put here. I mean, come on, people. Although that guy was pretty ripped. Um, but you know what? Right there, pfft, empty. Great, he's ripped. Big deal. Good job, bro. I'll never think of him again. Right? What, what value is there in that? It's empty. It's, it's fleeting. It's, pfft, it's nothing. Right? And conceit emerges out of, ultimately, a deep insecurity in who you are. Because we perceive an absence of honor and glory in ourselves. And so we are constantly seeking to prove it to ourselves and others by trying to one-up everyone. By working my arms all day and neglecting my legs. It's just what, you know, guys do. Where's Charles Craig? Is he around here today? (laughs) I love you, Chuck. I don't even think he's here. So, when we compare ourselves favorably to someone else, our hunger for honor and glory puffs us up, all right? We, we, we get that? On the flip side, uh, when our conceit causes us to, to look at someone and we feel inferior, that's because that perceived lack of honor, lack of glory, it devastates and deflates us. Both of those things are ultimately rooted in our conceit, our our desire for honor and glory from other people. You see how that works both ways? So our conceit either causes us to do one of two things then, to either provoke other people, or to envy other people. That's what Paul is talking about here. And both of these things are the exact opposite of loving one another that he's going to talk about here in the next verses. So what does it mean to provoke someone? All that means is to challenge someone to a contest. That's all it is. I'm provoking you, I'm challenging you to a contest for the purpose of showing my superiority to you. That's what the goal is. I want to show you that I'm stronger, bigger, faster, smarter, better looking, whatever the thing is, right? Taller, as the case may be. That's what those who are full of themselves are going to try to do. On the flip side, we have envying. And in the Greek, envying is just a 
a desire of something that rightfully belongs to someone else or a desire for someone else to no longer have the thing that I want. That's envy. Now, most of us generally lean one way or another in how we approach most situations in life. We might have an area, or there could be like areas where we're particularly proud, like that one thing that you do super well, and that's my area of conceited superiority. And then I have these other areas, maybe, where it's a lot of conceited inferiority. So it can be, we can be both of these things, depending on the situation. Or you can just be so down on yourself that you're constantly seeing yourself as inferior, or so full of yourself that you're constantly seeing yourself as superior. Right? We understand this? You got that? The key, of course, is letting the Spirit of God kind of show you what that is in the moment. And He will if you ask Him. But here's the really cool thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates all of this. Amen? Because in Christ, we have a new self-image. We are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right, says, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's, that's good news for that conceit that our flesh will gravitate towards one way or the other. And the gospel tells us that we have been saved by Jesus Christ, which is great because every single one of us is messed up in some way. Would anyone deny that? I mean, I'm, I, I got lots of issues. We all got our issues, whatever those things are. We are messed up. The Bible says that we are sinners. And Jesus died for every single one of us. Amen? That every single person on this planet who would bow their knee in faith, submitting to Christ, would have forgiveness and be saved from their issues, from their sin. That's, that's good news, right? That's a good thing. Amen? And so that is a big deal because no matter what our unique set of issues is, we are all saved and set free and forgiven at the foot of the cross, right? The ground is level at the feet of Jesus for everyone. There's no one who is above anyone else. So our identity as followers of Jesus should humble us so that we've, we're never seeing ourselves as better than anyone else because we all are equally in need of saving. We understand how this works, right? You guys get this. But the gospel also tells us that we have been adopted into the family of God the Father. That we are his children and that we will receive an eternal inheritance as co-heirs of Jesus Christ. Now as an attorney who does estate planning, I understand what that means. All right, It's a big deal that we get to share in the inheritance of the prince of the universe. That's a big deal, right? But that is lost on us. Like, we need to get how much our God loves us that he would adopt us and make us his sons and daughters. It's, it, it blows your mind if you understand the gravity of that. And it's not just that he brought us into his family. Scripture tells us that we are supremely loved and cherished by God and that there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Nothing at all. Read Romans 8. You'll be so encouraged by it. This truth should embolden us to never, ever feel inferior to anyone. Because the creator of the universe knows me and loves me and has a good plan for me. Amen? That is the joy of the gospel. That as followers of Jesus, we're humbled because we're all forgiven and set free. But as children of God, we are uplifted and we do not have to feel inferior to anybody. Amen? Do we see how the gospel obliterates the tendency towards either end of conceit? 
and our, our self-image is so, so important as we, as we go out into the world and actually seek to live out these one another commands. The lesser that we're shaped by who God says we are and the truth of the gospel, the more that we'll be shaped by what the world says we should be or should do, right? We understand that. And then we're going to have a tendency to compare ourselves to others, like Paul's saying not to do. But the more that we're living in the truth of Scripture, the less that happens by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, producing his fruit within us to be more like Jesus. So having laid that foundation of self-image and the critical, critical nature of our identity in Christ, Paul now outlines two primary ways that we are called to walk by the Spirit of God and to love one another. And the first is spiritual restoration. Spiritual restoration. He continues in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, the first thing that I want us to see here is that spiritual correction, that the sort that Paul is talking about, is only for brothers and sisters in the Lord. The word anyone here, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it refers back to the first word in the sentence, brothers. It refers back to those who are part of the family of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 and 13 say, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So we are called by the Spirit of God and the grace of God to go and to gently, lovingly correct those in the church. And Paul says that those of us who are spiritual should do this. Now, what does that mean? Is that like some like elite class of Christian, like, like the SEAL Team 6 Christians who go in and like correct people, Right? No, that's not what this means. All it means, very simply, and remember the context of this chapter, spiritual is just someone who is filled with and walking by the Spirit of God, that they are, they are in step with the Spirit. As the Spirit leads them, they go, they follow. So, that doesn't, you can be a baby Christian, and you can be a mature believer, and both can be equally spiritual in the sense that they are seeking to live by the power of the Spirit of God. And therefore, as something is brought to their attention, they can speak truth, loving truth, into that, right? We read at the very beginning of the service, Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love. Remember that? That's what we're called to do here. But any of us can do this. Now, the more mature Christian should have more time walking by the Spirit and therefore should be more adept with having the tact and the insight and the wisdom and the discernment with how to do this. But that doesn't mean that a new Christian can't so long as they are being led by the Spirit of God. We, we understand the distinction between those two things, right? Okay. The key here is that the spiritually and morally strong in the Lord are called to come alongside of and take responsibility for the spiritually and morally weak. Romans 15 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. So Christ took all of our sin on himself and dealt with it at the cross. Praise God. He didn't seek his own well-being. But in love, he did what was best for us. And so when someone is caught 
in a transgression, that is what we are called to do. What is this Greek word? What does this word caught mean? Well, it means very simply to be overcome by, overtaken by. It's, it's to fall into a trap and be, be taken by surprise. And it's important that we see that this is something, this transgression, is something that they can't defeat on their own. They do not have the power in themselves to overcome it. And it's something that may have happened recently or it may have happened over a long period of time. So this could be an ongoing pattern of behavior or it could be something that's flared up in the recent future and hasn't been dealt with. The key is that the person is trapped in this sin and can't get out. They might not even see it. They might not even be aware of it. Now, 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins, meaning that there are many sins that we, we overlook, right? Proverbs says that it's to, to someone's glory to overlook an offense done to them, right? That's not the type of sin or transgression that's being talked about here. This type of sin should never be overlooked because it's one that it's not about a lack of judgment or a momentary weakness or some offense against you that you can just slough off or some sin that someone acknowledges and then quickly moves away from. It's something that they are trapped in or are blind to. Okay? We, we, we got that? And, and here, again, we begin to see why identity is so important in this. Because when someone is caught in sin, conceited superiority would cause us to look down on them and demean them for their choices and actions and, and to be filled with our own self-righteousness. And that's, we can put a veneer on that very easily. Oh, look at them. That's, well, that's really bad for them. I just can't believe you did that again, right? It's all mental. It's in our hearts. It's very easy to put someone down especially if it's a sin that we formerly struggled with and aren't necessarily struggling with now. I've found in my experience that people are particularly brutal with people in sins that they struggled with at one time, which is the exact opposite of the way it should be. We should be even more merciful to those people, right? Because we get it, we understand it. That's actually 2 Corinthians chapter 1, why the Lord takes us through those things in the first place. Anyway, I digress. Now, the other side of it, of course, is conceited inferiority, which would either cause us to want to be able to sin like they are and envy their poor choices. Man, I can't believe they're doing that. That looks so fun. I want to try. Or that we are seeking that person's approval so much that we just, we don't even, we don't even mention it. We just overlook it. It's like, ah, that, you didn't do that. I don't, you know, no, you're, you're my friend. I don't want to lose this friendship. I'm not going to say anything about this issue. That's that conceited inferiority, that envy. And we hide from the sin and pretend it doesn't exist. When I was a little kid, my dad got injury on his knee. It was a deep, deep bone bruise. If anyone has had a deep bone bruise, you know that it's a very, very painful thing. Anyone experienced that before? Yeah, it, it hurts a lot. And he could barely walk. It, it wasn't like any ligaments were torn. It was just this bruise in his knee where all the blood was collecting and he just, it was hard. And the only way he could, he could get through it was to get these cortisone shots to help to relieve the pain enough for the bone to heal. And so he would go to the doctor, and, and so my brother and I decided that we were going to go along with him to be moral support as he went and got this shot that he was so afraid of. And so, of course, we're teasing Dad about being afraid of a little needle. It's going to hurt that bad. I don't like these shots. They hurt so much. And we're kind of dogging him for the pain he was experiencing and the difficulty he was going through. One might say that we had a little bit of conceited inferiority in that moment. Superiority. Switch that. Switch that. Just wanted to check if you were all listening. You opened the balcony. You caught that, right? Okay. Well, 
in comes the doctor, and dad lays down on the table and prepares for the shot. And the doctor takes out this tiny little needle, and we just start laughing. We're like, that is what you're so afraid of? And the doctor starts to give him shots. And my dad didn't say anything. He just smiled. And the doctor's like, well, actually, this is just the Novocaine to help numb it before we put this in his body. <laughs> and it's like a foot long. Are you kidding me? My brother and I were so freaked out, we literally hid under the table. It was like, that will skewer a man. How does that go in his knee? Ridiculous, right? And so we are hiding under the table. The doctor gives him the shot. And, I mean, we couldn't even look at it. It was so heinous, right? So the point, the point of this is that we can't, ignore sin because of our own insecurities and fears. By the way, I, since that time, I'm deathly afraid of needles. I will, it's like my hands get all clammy when I have to go and get like the little shots now. We can't just hide from sin because of our own insecurities and fears, nor can we dismiss people who fall into sin as beneath us or, or not as tough as us or, or as being beyond saving. Both of these things reveal the conceited sin and pride in our own hearts. Rather than either of those things, the spiritual Christian recognizes someone caught in sin and gently restores them. Gentleness here in the Greek simply means humility and meekness. Now, humility is, is the idea of tremendous power under control. Like, I have a lot of power here, but I am not exercising it. It's under control. And it's one of the, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The second to last fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, a little bit earlier, 5.23, is what? Is gentleness. It's the same word. So literally, Paul says here that we should restore people with the humility provided by the Spirit, which is why this has to be done by a spiritual person. If you're not walking by the Spirit, you can't even do this in a humble, gentle way. And what does it mean to restore? Well, to restore means to mend and make whole, make complete again. And it's tied very much to the idea of shalom, of peace, of, of wholeness. And it was a term that was used for setting a broken or dislocated bone back into place. Which, if anyone has ever had a broken or dislocated bone, anyone here experienced that? All right, a couple more hands. You know that that's a very painful process to get that back in place. In fact, oftentimes nowadays, they just they put you out so you don't feel it. But... You have to get that bone or dislocation put back in place or you will never heal right. You will be messed up from that point forward the rest of your life. And so we see here that Paul is saying that loving correction is the only way to make people whole again. And we have to gently and boldly pursue that, even though it's going to be painful, because it is for their good and for the good of the whole body of Christ. Hebrews 12 says, For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And of course, he's using the metaphor of a body for the church. Now, what does this mean practically? Let me just give you some practical, straightforward stuff. This means that when we come across a brother or sister who is caught in some transgression, the first thing we try to help them to do by the grace of God and the Spirit working that gentleness within us is to help them to acknowledge their sin. That's always the starting point. Now, oftentimes people are there and they already know it and see it and they hate it. They're just caught in it. Sometimes or not. Sometimes it takes some time to get people to acknowledge it. But secondly, once they acknowledge it, then 
We need to help them to turn away from it, turn their back to it, literally to repent from it, to move away and confess it to God, confess our sin is against God first and foremost, and then genuinely seek forgiveness from him with with a contrite heart, with, with genuine godly sorrow. And you can read 2 Corinthians, didn't write it down, is it 7? I can't remember. And thirdly then, we, we take steps to actively overcome that sin with them, to hold them accountable, to fight against the temptations, to fall into the snare of the enemy again, because you better believe the enemy is going to keep coming after them to get them to try to fall. Very practical, straightforward, but this is how we come alongside people. And then Paul goes on to say that, that we'll only be able to do this if we are humbly watching ourselves and our own behavior, because it's so easy to fall yourself into sin if you're not careful, especially, especially the sin of pride when someone else is struggling, right? And that, that conceited superiority coming in and you elevating yourself above them, that self-righteousness. You know this, but I'm just going to say it. We are never, ever, ever called to treat a brother or sister caught in sin like a lesser Christian or an outcast. But unfortunately, lots of people feel like they are, especially with some of those special categories of sin. People don't even feel like they can talk about it or confess it or Repent of it. And that is, that is an indictment on us that we do not love them well enough for them to be comfortable enough to talk about that. We are called to gently and lovingly confront our brothers and sisters who are dislocated through their sin and to be in good enough relationship with them where they can come to us and share that, that they need help. Seeking to restore them into right fellowship with the rest of the body without any condemnation. It is not our job to condemn. Recognize the difference between condemnation and judgment that leads to restoration. There is a stark difference. Only God has the right to condemn anybody. But we are called as brothers and sisters to come around each other and lift up. And that requires a judgment of the sin. I don't have time to go deeper into that. Now, it is worth noting that sometimes someone might not receive this correction. It happens. And so Jesus gave us a process to follow in Matthew 18. And you can study that in the event that someone is not receiving that correction. But the key is that we have the courage and the concern to lovingly correct them in the first place without any hint of conceit. And so we have, we have spiritual restoration, but then secondly, the last point here is that we are called to selflessly bear one another's burdens, selfless burden bearing. And Galatians 2 through 5 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, for then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, before we discuss this, jump back to chapter 5, look at chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's another one. There's one another commands. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is the law of Christ. Paul is connecting verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5 with verse 2 of chapter 6. And he shows us that burden-bearing, which spiritual restoration falls under, burden-bearing is one of the chief ways that we love one another. And the law of Christ is that we love one another, as we learned last sermon when we studied that, right? John 13. Love one another as I have loved you, right? That's what Jesus said. So what does it mean to bear someone's burden? Well, the Greek word for Bear means to carry or lift up with endurance out of the hands of someone else. 
And this word, this word bear, is written in the continuous tense, meaning that we're called to do this over and over and over and over as a normal part of our faith walk. There's no such thing as as living on a pole apart from our church family if we truly understand how we're called to love one another and, and hold one another up hold up those burdens. And what what are those burdens? The word burden here just means a very, very heavy weight that presses down upon you. Now, we've all lived life, right? I, I hope I don't need to explain what these things are. It can be anything, right? It can be financial. It can be relational. It can be a job. It can be health. It can be anything that is weighing you down. These are these burdens, And the only way that we can actually bear someone else's burden is if we are close enough to them to do that. And we put ourselves in their position under that weight, using our own strength to push against the weight to help them lift that burden. And oftentimes this means putting down our own burdens for a while so that we can help others with theirs. Recognize the intimacy of this, guys. There is no such thing as burden-bearing from a distance. There is no such thing as seeing someone every now and then and being there to help uphold them. This requires intimate community and relationship. And this is only possible for those of us, ultimately, who have the Spirit of God within us, producing this way of thinking. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We're called to be burden bearers by the Spirit of God changing the way that we even think about how community should work and how we should relate. And it's a process that we go through. This isn't just... Not going to walk out of here and be like, oh yeah, great, let's all burden bear for each other. It, it happens over time as we approach people and we allow people to approach us. But here's the cool thing. The Spirit of God does this for us every day. He is our burden bearer as he constantly points us to Jesus. The name helper in John 14 and 16, paraclete, literally means one who comes alongside of and picks up. That's the name that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit always directs us to Christ. Psalm 55 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, That we are to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Praise God for those truths. Amen? But even though the Lord is the ultimate burden bearer, we've got to recognize, church, that one of the primary ways he helps relieve the burden is through our brothers and sisters. It's how he works. And so if we neglect that community, that relationship, we will lose out on how the Lord wants to work and move in our lives. We are not to be pole sitters. And this is why fellowship, this is why koinonia, sharing our life with one another. If you were here on New Year's weekend, I preached on this. This is why this is so important. And it's why the early church devoted themselves to it, Acts 2.42. They made community, sharing life together, a priority for how they lived out their faith. Now, we live in a different time and a different context, and so it's going to look different. But we have got to have that same set of priorities where we are making community of utmost importance. And I want us to see how countercultural this was for Paul's readers and for us. Because it was considered demeaning in the Greco-Roman world to stoop to help anybody. 
At best, you'd send your servant to do it. If you saw someone hurting, it was, it was considered a weakness to go and help them. And though our world today pretends to value the idea of helping others, let's just be honest and recognize that the overwhelming message of our culture is not to live for others, it's to live for who? It's to live for ourselves. And we are constantly bombarded with this push to live this individualistic pursuit of self-fulfillment that is just selfish and hedonistic in every way. And let me also remind us that someone is only able to carry your burdens if you actually share those burdens with them. We can't fall into the pride of refusing to allow our brothers and sisters to know what's going on in our lives and to help us out. And I know many of us fall into that trap, right? I don't want to bother them. They don't want to hear it again. This is for me to bear. A lot of us do that. And we're the ones who suffer for it. And God loses glory because of it. Right? We steal glory from him when we try to shoulder that load up for ourselves instead of allowing our brothers and sisters to help bear that weight and therefore praise God when he comes through. This is why James 5 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is why in verses 3 and 4, Paul repeats the call not to compare ourselves to others because when we're comparing ourselves to others, we're not going to be sharing our burdens with them either. And he reminds us that we ourselves, by ourselves, we are nothing. In fact, Jesus himself in John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if, if we think we're something, then we do not have a servant's heart, which is what Paul is calling us to, this, this servant's heart. So we're called to serve others, and then in verse 4, we're called also to focus on our own work, the work that the Lord has called us to. And this there might seem some dissonance here in the text, but let me explain. See, as we faithfully complete the work that God calls us to by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can boast in the fact that God is strengthening us. And we don't have to compare ourselves to others to boast. We boast simply in the Lord. Do you understand what Paul's doing there? We are called to boast in the Lord as he helps us to faithfully handle the personal responsibilities that he calls us to. Romans 12 says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Then he continues his thought and call to carry our own load. That's how he ends this whole passage, which may sound a bit contradictory, because he says, bear one another's burdens, but at the end here he says, carry your own load. Like, how does that work? Well, we have to understand the Greek, and it just comes down to the, the words. The word load here refers to a personal weight that one carries. All right? And it's often used in the Greek to describe like a backpack or a little, a little sack that someone's carrying, which is especially cool when it has Star Wars on it. So, this word is not an overwhelming burden like the burden in verse 2, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 1, um, but, uh, no, verse two, but a personal responsibility one is called to bear, okay? See, God has given each of us a different measure of faith and therefore has called each of us to a different set of responsibilities. And so, as we carry those things out, by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God, we can then boast in Christ working in us and we don't have to compare ourselves to others. We can find contentment in who we are in Christ. We see how that works. That's how this whole passage ties together. 
And when we are content in who we are in Christ, then we can go out and bear the burdens of others, seeking to restore them when necessary and coming under the weight that they are being crushed by when we see it. But it all works together as we do what we're called to individually as children of God. And this, this brings us back to Simeon, the stylite, sitting on his pole, seeking this deeper spirituality and holiness. See, at, at some point, large crowds began to gather at Simeon's feet on a regular basis. And initially, he sought to raise his perch up higher and higher above them, not wanting to be burdened by all of their troubles. But can we praise God that the Holy Spirit works in us, <laughs> even in the midst of our stubbornness sometimes? And that those who are genuinely seeking God will have the opportunity to find Him, that's what Scripture says. And over time, Simeon began to see the people around him not as a distraction, but as an opportunity to love others as Jesus loves him. And, and though he didn't come down off his pole, he began to embrace those around him every day in conversation and prayer and teaching, sharing, sharing the wisdom that the Lord had shown him in his meditations in solitude. And from that point forward, he became so revered and loved because of his words of wisdom and powerful prayers for others that there became a whole movement of people sitting on columns ministering to those who would sit at their feet. And I'm not suggesting that any of us should go out and do that, but like Simeon, I pray that we all fervently seek the Lord and grow in our understanding of our identity as followers of Christ so that we can turn around and share that love and holiness with those around us as we, bur uh, as we bear our burdens together to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.